about that for a scripture. I did look at Frank a moment ago. I said, sorry, Frank. I'm sorry that you have to read that one. And I guess it's good that the little ones are not here. But before we jump into that psalm, which is a, is a hard and confusing one, there's no, there's no question, right? Um, but before we jump into that and begin to, to look at what that has to offer us today, um, let me just say really quickly, uh, one, uh, it's so wonderful to be here. Um, David Jules is my name. I'm the pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian in Newport Beach. Um, and it has been a joy to walk with you in the transition in the last couple years. Iron was a, was a mentor of mine. Iron, when he was in town, still now, but whenever I'd run into something um, that I didn't know what to do or some pastoral issue that I, I didn't know how to handle or, or um, all, all sorts of things, I would call Iron. He'd be one of my first phone calls. So I was very sad to see him go, but um, I, I love him and appreciate him and all that he's done here and God has done through him here. Um, and the last couple years, uh, I know you know this, but your, your, your search committee team Oh my gosh, the amount of work that goes into that, um, the amount of sacrifice that it takes, um, so much goes into making sure that transition is led well. So um, give them a big kiss on the cheek, right? Um, and take them to lunch or something, you know, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, big, uh, it's a big task. And, and I'm excited, really excited for Trinity uh, because I know Eric. Um, Eric Kapoor is a tremendous pastor. Um, and my associate pastor, the associate pastor I work with, Adam Feichman, was on your uh, transitional uh, kind of session team, so you've met him. But I, I told Adam, uh, w whenever we knew he was kind of in, in the running, I talked to Adam. I said, I hope he comes up here. We have so much to learn from Eric. I just, as soon as he's here, we're taking him to lunch. I want to hear everything about his experience at, at Redeemer in San Diego. So you're getting an experienced pastor, a tremendous leader, um, and not just an experienced pastor and tremendous leader, but a, but a shepherd and a good man of the humble spirit, um, a man that I'm, I'm excited to work with and learn from and, and walk with you all in the next years to come. So it's a very exciting season for you. Um, um, know that Redeemer is excited uh, for you, here to support you and, and to walk with you in what God has for us next. So uh, with that, let me, let me pray, and then we will look at this psalm together. Jesus, thank you for your word. We don't know what to do with passages like this, if we're honest. These are ones that we avoid, ones that make us uncomfortable. But Lord, we have come here this morning not to hear from the words of a pastor, but to hear from you through your word, and we trust that this is your word. This has been passed down for generations and generations, for thousands of years. It's part of our hymn book in the scriptures. It's part of your revealed word to us. Would you speak with power through it to us today? Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are profoundly emotional creatures, and it seems that our nightly news, any news outlet, Facebook or Twitter, is punctuated every day with a new emotional disaster, a new outpouring of someone else's suffering and woundedness turned into the suffering and woundedness on somebody else, whether it's in France recently, and a wounded man, and a crazy man, apparently, exacting violence on people on the street, or, or just recently in San Bernardino in our own area here, whether Dallas. I, I, it's, a, it's amazing to me as a preacher to stand here and know that I can mention three or four recent mass shootings or mass acts of violence and know that I'm missing some. So what, what do we do as Christians with the kind of anger we're supposed to feel about those things? Or the kind of deep woundedness that those situations bring to us 
whether directly or even at a distance, or the kind of deep woundedness that they remind us of that we've actually experienced in our lives. Our emotions are deep. What do we do with them? Our anger, our deep emotions. This psalm is a tough one, but it's one of visceral and deep emotion. And what Psalm 137 can do for us is it can actually provide for us a pathway to deal honestly with our wounds. And in such a way that freedom and hope can replace the anger and the bitterness that plagues and debilitates so many of us. This is the context of this psalm. Siege warfare was one of the greatest nightmares of a fortified city in the ancient world. Just, just imagine it. The walls exist so that when your invaders come, you can keep them outside of those walls as long as you can survive. But what happens, of course, is you have a large invading army, and this is the context for this psalm, a large invading army that surrounds Jerusalem. In this case, it was the, the Babylonians. And they lay siege to Jerusalem for months and months and months and months. Imagine the emotion of that, being an inhabitant of Jerusalem and knowing that you're surrounded by the mightiest army in the world. And they're not going anywhere. They have provisions and resources. They're actually just out of arrow shot range and building siege towers so they can breach your walls. And you know what will happen when they breach your walls. They're going to slaughter you. And they're going to take those they don't kill into captivity. Psalm 137 is the remembering of that siege warfare from those who were taken captive. Those who saw their neighbors murdered and killed. Those who saw their children viciously slaughtered. This psalm is a remembrance of those events. Humankind's capacity to commit atrocity against one another is staggering. We've seen it already in the events that I've already listed, and we see it here in this psalm. Now, fortunately, most of us will not have to go through personally these kinds of horrible tragedies, but every one of us in this room is deeply wounded. Wounded even at the hands of someone that was supposed to love and protect and trust us. We are all wounded and scarred, and Psalm 137 gives us a pathway to not hide from those things, but to find the healing that we all long for. What we're going to see in this psalm is that we can trust God with our deepest wounds. That he actually invites us to be honest about our deepest wounds, invites us to entrust our deepest wounds to him. And that he is exceedingly powerful, trustworthy, and loving enough for us to actually Trust these deepest of wounds to him. Now remember what the Psalms are. The Psalms are the, the hymn book of the, of, of the people of, of Israel, of God's people. They're written over the course of a, a couple thousand years. It's a, the, the anthology, the collection of the best of the best, of the hymns, of the poetry that captured the emotional experience of God's people in all the many dynamics of their life. Think about for a moment how important that is. What we have here is a collection 
of how faithful followers of God respond to God in every season of their life, whether great tragedy or great success. When, when many of us, myself profoundly included, you can ask my wife about this, are confused what to do with our own emotions. They seem to control us and cause us to do things that on, upon later reflection we'd rather wish we hadn't done. We're, we're an emotional mess in so many ways. What the Psalms actually give us is these pictures of how people just as confused and twisted and hurt as us actually stumbled along faithfully following God, especially as we see in this psalm with anger and deep woundedness. The psalms are a wonderful book because they remind us that God is not far from those who experience raw and difficult emotions. The psalms are honest. They don't hide from any aspect of the human experience. The psalms are meant to shape us as the people who sing them. This is another aspect of the Psalms. Imagine this, singing Psalm 137. What does it give voice to? How does singing this Psalm or reciting this poetry over generations shape a people? That's actually a good way to, to, to understand the Psalms or to study the Psalms. When you come to a Psalm, ask the question, how would singing this Psalm or reciting this Psalm generation after generation, even week after week, month after month, how would this shape a people into a faithful follower of their God. That's a great doorway into understanding the depths of what the Psalms can do for us. So with that bit of background now, the Psalms as a hymn book, and especially Psalm 137 as a hymn, lyrical poetry capturing the experience of those in captivity after a siege, with that as the context, let's move now into the Psalm. If you can look at it on your, your order of worship, your bulletin, in your Bibles, it's Psalm 137. And let me read part of it again here. And I, I want you even sometimes do this. If you don't do this, it's helpful sometimes to close your eyes and just imagine the psalm, imagine the words of Scripture playing out in front of you. They're, they're imagistic, especially the psalms. This is verse 1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So this is the picture. A group of Israelites, musicians, with their lyres, in exile in Babylon, weeping together. Together. Weeping over their loss, over their, the, the violence they'd suffered, the tragedy of even their future as they look into it. Where are we going to go next? And they're being mocked by their tormentors. Wounded already, and salt poured in the wounds. Those who have captured them and killed their neighbors and burned their homes and destroyed their future actually sang of these musicians, sing one of those happy songs of your God Yahweh. Sing one of the good ones, the ones full of joy. How could they sing those in the face of such tragedy? 
They stop and they sit together, these musicians, acknowledging their loss, acknowledging it together, honest about these deepest of wounds. That's hard for us to do, isn't it? Just that. When's the last time that you sat with people that you trusted weeping over your loss or theirs? It's hard to be this honest about our woundedness and difficulty. Let, 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 let me give you just a, a silly example. We've read a psalm about killing children. It's already pretty intense. Let, let, me, let me relax us for a moment. Now, I was at a, a meeting several months ago, and here I am with uh, one of the elders at Redeemer, and we're sitting and talking, and we're actually in this, uh, by this coffee shop that had these glass doors. I mean, and they had just been perfectly cleaned, right? Someone had spent hours on these things. You couldn't hardly see them, right? And so along comes a guy looking to get out of the building, not seeing the glass, and what he does is, slam as hard as I've ever heard somebody slam into glass. He slams into it. I mean, just full on his face leading the way. I mean, it, 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 everyone stopped and looked. It was so loud. And you know what his response was? It's what we would do too. He immediately looked around to see who had seen him and got out of that building as fast as he could, right? What's the experience? I can't, I don't want anybody to see me make that mistake, or I'm going to not even feel the pain on my face and body. I just want to get out of here so no one sees me hurt, right? Sometimes we see this with little kids, right? Who Little kids will, will fall, right? And then jump up, like, oh, it didn't, that didn't hurt. That didn't, that didn't hurt. Maybe they're bleeding and they need some help, but no, no, it didn't hurt, right? Emerging into the late elementary school, early teenage years, right? It didn't hurt me. No pain. The truth is, how many of us do this? With our wounds, with the ways that we've been violated and hurt, very honestly, even with the guilt and the shame we feel over hurting and violating others, we hide it. We want to get away from that pain as quickly as possible so that we don't have to feel it anymore, so we can move beyond it, so we can forget it. This psalm encourages us to do something different. It gives us a picture, an invitation even, to be honest about our deepest wounds, to be honest even in the context of this psalm about our anger. This psalm is encouraging us to acknowledge our woundedness to God, to process it with Him and with His people. A call to process our anger, our disappointment, not to cover it up. One of the ways that singing this psalm and reciting this over the generations would shape the people of God, is they would learn to do this, to, to create space in their community, in their churches, in their places uh, where they gather, to, to let people weep, to let people acknowledge and talk about their difficulties, their hurts, their wounds, and even without answers or solutions or advice, but just space to do what we see here which is weep together. We must not think that these kinds of emotions separate us from God. It's very important. Do you know this? That when these emotions of your own woundedness come up, 
that feeling that way, as negative, as bad as that might make you feel, that that way of feeling doesn't separate you from God? That here we see in this psalm, it's an invitation to be honest about the way we feel with our God and with his people. Let's keep moving in the psalm. It gets even more intense now. So we've seen already that God invites us to be honest about our deepest wounds, our deepest emotions, our anger. Look what happens next here in the psalm. This is the toughest part. So verse 7 of Psalm 137. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, this is a neighboring, a neighboring country, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. So the Edomites, a neighboring, a neighboring country, instead of coming to the aid of Jerusalem, actually are um, cheerleaders of the oppressing army, encouraging the Babylonians to utterly destroy Jerusalem. Then verse 8, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them on the rocks. There, There might not be a more grotesque image in our scripture than this. But this is the truth of this kind of warfare in this kind of time, at this time and place. But do you see the, the emotional shift in the psalm here? The psalmist has gone from weeping and remembering Jerusalem and feeling the deep wounds of loss, have gone from this to now white-hot anger. Do you see the shift? It's almost as if the, as their tormentors, as the Babylonians are, are telling them, sing those songs of joy. And they're feeling the torment again, and they're, they're, they're remembering Jerusalem, they're remembering what, they're, what they've lost, they're weeping over it, and it turns now to images of that siege. Images of the violence exacted against them. It's in their minds, it's in their emotions. And again, notice, they don't cover it up, they don't hide it, they express it together. And not only that, They put it in lyrical poetry to be captured by the people of God. This is hard for us and can produce a lot of confusion because it's such a grotesque image. But before we discount this psalm as immoral, we need to remember and understand a few things here. Who is this directed to? Look at the psalm with me. Look at at verse 7. Who is it directed to? It's directed to God. This is a prayer. The psalmist is praying his anger. Biblical prayer is an expression of dependence and trust. He has no delusions that, that, that he controls God or pulls him like a, a puppet on a string. He's feeling his dependence deeply. And, th- and this word remember that we see in the text, it's not as if he, he thinks that God has forgotten somehow. Uh, in the context, this term in particular is often associated with God's justice. It's not as if he's saying, God, I think maybe you've forgotten the way we've been violated. You haven't done anything yet, so you must have forgotten it. Th- th- this is not what that word is pointing at. It's a, this a, almost a judicial term. It's almost as if to say to a judge, can we get our case on the docket? I know there's a lot on the docket. 
Can you remember our case? Can you bring it up on the docket? Can justice come now for what we've experienced? This is significant because he is invoking in this psalm the justice of God. God as the ultimate judge. Even as he is feeling or she is feeling their white hot anger over how they've been violated, the response is to say, God, you are the judge and you are the judge alone. Please, please do to them what they've done to us. Be just to them. Give them what they deserve. And of course, this is what he's asking for, this simple justice. Those that did atrocious things to us, they should be punished by feeling and experiencing the same level of suffering that they caused. And the psalmist is saying, God, will you do that? Be the just God that we know you to be. And in this way, the psalmist is actually setting limits on his anger. He's setting boundaries. God is the judge. Instead of what we see horribly on our news, now every few weeks, someone's anger and feelings of injustice bubbling over into whether it's riots or attacks, somehow the people who are doing these kinds of violent acts actually are thinking in that moment that this is the best option for them. This is the right expression of their anger and injustice. What the psalmist is doing here is reminding himself and the people of God that God alone is the judge. That they're not going to take justice into their own hands, but trust that God is the one who will exact justice. Now, of course, that looks many different ways, doesn't it? The way that Bonhoeffer might have talked about justice in his context, and the way that Martin Luther King might have talked about justice in his context, could have been very different. And that's the hard work of being a Christian, working out our faith in the real world of real experiences and real injustice, and it's embodied differently in different times and places. But we see here the very foundation of biblical ethics and justice, that God alone is the, just, is, is, is the one who is just. God alone is the judge. And he sets the boundaries for our anger. What we see in the Psalms is rhetorical power. Don't you see? Raw emotion. This lyrical poetry meant to capture the visceral, white-hot anger of God's people. Do you know that we can pray this way? We can pray this angry with each other. We can pour out our emotion this way with God. A few weeks ago, I, I walked into Target. And the buzz of a busy shopping center wasn't in the air. Instead, in this moment, there was this kind of stillness and silence. It was the middle of the day. It was full of people. And there was anticipation in the air. I walked in, and you can feel it. It was just thick. You could almost hold on to it. Something was happening. People were, were stopped, and they were looking around. And as I did the same, stopped and looked around to see what was happening, there was one woman in particular in the center of the crowd. And you, and you could see her frantically looking about two children in, her, in, her, um, in a stroller and beginning to, to cry and, and look around. And she said, Where, where's my baby? 
where she's looking and talking to the people at Target who were working there. Her two kids were with her, and, and, and she couldn't find her infant daughter. And as the, the fervor of looking for this baby began to increase, different workers from Target are running around, and, and, and they're looking at the, 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 the monitors that, that capture all, on video everything happening in the store. And people are offering her advice and coming around her, and you can see her start to break and start to break emotionally in front of her children. And in, in that moment, I just I went up to her, and I, and I pulled her aside, and we went into, a, into the room where the, the video cameras were. And, and she was sure that someone had taken her baby. Baby in was in, was in one of the, um, the shopping carts and now gone. And they're looking at the video to see who had taken her and, and, and how they, um, where they would have left the building. And they're calling the police. And the feelings of hopelessness that she felt and that I felt in that moment. Oh my goodness, this is a stranger. And still I'm feeling hopeless. And so I look at her and I say, can I just, can I just pray with you? In the most kind of lame, <laughs> lame, lame, whiny kind of way. Can I, can I pray with you? And instead of me praying with her, what happened is it opened up this floodgates for her, and she prayed. Emotional, raw begging of God, where is my baby? How could this have happened to me? God, how could you let this happen? Please find her. Weeping and crying and yelling. That is what we see in this psalm. That emotion. The weeping and the crying and the raw emotion where we're praying and we're not in control. Wild, out-of-control trust. Wild, out-of-control dependence. Now the good thing is that they did find her baby. And I, and I left pretty quickly and didn't figure out what had happened, but no one had taken the baby or... or or if they did, they had left the baby, they, they found the baby in a cart, and, and maybe uh, the cart had been collected by one of the Target employees. I, I, don't, I don't know what happened, but as soon as they found this, this baby, um, things are restored, and I left and didn't figure out what happened next. But the good is they found this baby. But it, but it left this impression on me. That way of praying is a way we need to learn to pray. Because while maybe you haven't lost a child, or maybe you have, maybe you haven't undergone the kind of violence that you see in Psalm 137, or maybe you have. But what Psalm 137 reminds the people of God is this way of praying is good and right and faithful. Not covering up our emotions, our real experiences in the world, but honest, raw, out-of-control dependence. That's what I saw in her. Honest, raw, out-of-control dependence. Have you ever prayed that way? Now, we're not accustomed to praying this way. Now, other Christians in other cultures are, and it's beautiful. We are not so much. Presbyterians in the West... We might be on the other end of the spectrum here. There's really great things about our tradition, but we don't do emotion real well. Um, but what, what Psalm 137 should remind us of, especially of people, everyone in this room is wounded and hurt. There are things that we grieve over. But there's something in our culture that says, especially in our Christian culture and our churches, that says we should push those emotions down, move away from them, move on, forget. What Psalm 137 reminds us to do, and, and the many psalms like it, is no... You really experience those things. You're really wounded by them. 
And God is inviting you, inviting you, giving you examples of praying them through, honestly. What we see here in Psalm 137 is the psalmist entrusting his anger to God. It doesn't limit his anger. It's still white hot, but he's entrusting it to God. Do you see the rhythm of this psalm? An invitation to be honest about our woundedness, our anger, our deep emotion. And then an example of entrusting it to God. Entrusting it doesn't take the emotion away, but it provides the banks of the river for our emotion to flow in a way that doesn't destroy us and all those around us. So maybe even this week, if you're not comfortable doing it with somebody, go find a place by yourself. There are things that each of us should grieve over and weep over. Ways that we've been wounded, ways that we've wounded others. What this psalm is asking us to do, inviting us to do, is to be honest and real and raw with our God. He can handle this level of emotion. Let's ask this question. And we'll really close with the answer to this question. Can we pray this way? Can we pray like the author of Psalm 137? It's an invitation to be honest. It's an invitation to entrust our anger. But he still is, he's still asking the just judge to give the people that have wounded him the same experience that he's experienced. I lost a child, so they, I want them to lose a child. I experienced this, and so I want them to experience this. The simple justice. He's entrusting justice into the hand of the judge, but what he's asking for is this simple justice. They need to hurt the way that I've hurt. Can we, do we pray that way? Do you know that I'm going to say yes and no? Yes. In the sense of entrusting justice into the hand of God, longing for His justice to be complete, come, King Jesus, come, absolutely we pray this way. But also, no. We, we can't pray completely this way because we now know something about God's justice that the psalmist didn't. Now, there are hints in the Scripture. There's examples in the Scripture. The psalmist, whether it's him or her, we could have sat with them and asked them questions about God's justice, and they, they very likely would have moved in this direction. But we now see more clearly than they could have what God does with those who offend His justice. And it, and it changes everything. Let, let me give you this image. This is Luke 19. This is towards the end of Luke, and Jesus has marched to Jerusalem. And here He is, overlooking the city. This is verse 41 of Luke 19. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus has come to Jerusalem and knows what's going to happen next. This is what he says overlooking Jerusalem. And, and as we've seen in his ministry, and of course as we know from him, he's steeped dip, deeply in the scripture. He, he knows the scripture. He, he has the Psalms in his head. He, he uses scripture as a, as, as, a, as, as a language to communicate to his, his learners. He knows the Psalms from, from infancy on as he's been taught them in a Jewish home. And Luke 19 is the only place the word dash is used in the New Testament. Translated here as, as the phrase, tear down to the ground. Now in the six other passages in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, four refer, of the use of this word, four of those refer to Psalm 137. Now in, in, in this context, it doesn't tell us, but this is my, my educated guess. I wonder if Jesus has Psalm 137 in his mind. He's overlooking Jerusalem. He's talking about siege warfare. He uses the term that is used in Psalm 137. But Jesus knows he's entering Jerusalem to be rejected, to be falsely accused, to be executed. And yet here he, he weeps over the city. He does not look to exact justice on those who reject him, though that would have been good and right. Instead, we know that from the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The visceral cry in Psalm 137 is, Someone must pay for the wrong that they've done to me. There must be justice. And they're right. That's a good thing to long for, a good thing to want, a good thing to fight for. But what we know now is that if each of us in this moment were to pay the debt we owe to God's justice, we wouldn't survive. If, if each of us were in this moment to somehow have to settle our debts, with the ways that we have violated other people's dignity and violated our own dignity, the things that we should have done but did not, the things that we did do that we shouldn't have, what would we do with that? This staggering debt that each of us owe to God's justice. Now this is not to say that all sin is the same and that we're all in the same place in regards to how we've hurt others, but it is to say that we see now a picture of how God's justice works. God says, I will pay the debt. Instead of having your children dashed against the rock, I will dash myself so that you can be forgiven. Is this in Jesus' mind, in these words? Instead of you demanding 
That you would dash other people's children against the rocks. Instead of me saying that your children will be dashed against the rocks, I will dash myself against the rocks so that you can be forgiven. This is what Jesus dying on the cross was all about. He took our place so that we could be forgiven for our violations of justice, so that we would not get what we deserve, but instead would receive mercy and forgiveness. Jesus' resurrection confirmed and sealed that this is accomplished, that sin and death have been defeated. Romans 3, God put Jesus forward to satisfy justice by His blood to be received by faith so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you need any more encouragement of why you can entrust justice to God's hands, this is it. He's better at it than us. More health and healing come from the way that he handles justice than the way that we might initially want to handle justice. Of course here, don't hear what I'm not saying. In a room like this, there's people wounded. And God invites our most visceral cries for anger, our sobbing cries for justice. He does not and will not overlook or forget the way that you have been wronged. Justice will be served. We can trust God with our deepest wounds. He invites us to be honest about our deepest wounds, to entrust our deepest wounds and anger to Him. But we have to remember, now that we know how God pays the debt of justice, that God's justice is surprising. We now know that Jesus, God himself, absorbed the wrath of his justice for his people. And this changes everything. Psalm 137 calls us to be honest, to be open, to long for justice. But the gospel reminds us and gives us the power to forgive other people when they've profoundly wronged us. Not covering it up, not saying it's okay, simply paying someone else's debt because your debt has been paid. Do you see that difference? To to extend forgiveness to someone else isn't to say it's okay, not to say I don't feel hurt and wounded, it's to say my debt has been paid and out of the abundance of what has already been given to me, I extend that forgiveness to you. So our anger, what do, we, what do we do with it? Our deepest woundedness, our emotions, what do, we, what do we do with them? This psalm and the many like it invite us to be honest about our deepest wounds. Don't cover them up to God or to his people and to entrust our deepest wounds to him as the good and just judge Jesus, realizing that we are not the judge. And as we do so, Let's cultivate a community where we long for justice, know that it's coming, and weep over the ways that we've been hurt. Let's pray together. Lord, would you give us the courage to be as honest about our emotional lives as we see in Psalm 137? Would we see in in Jesus the just judge, but also the one that forgives 
Would we see in Him a pathway forward to receive hope and forgiveness for ourselves and an unending flow of forgiveness that we can extend to others? Lord, as this church in the next days and weeks begins to be maybe even in some deeper ways honest about our hurts and our wounds, would you meet them there? Lord, as you have called even me personally to deeper honesty about my own wounds and my own hurts and the ways that I feel wronged, would you allow me with this people to be honest, to weep, to know that you're a God who can handle those things and brings healing in surprising ways. Lord, we trust you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.